The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines today. U.S. markets resume their sell-off and the two and ten year Treasury yields hit fresh highs as investors anticipate another bumper Fed hike. Hedge fund boss Leon Cooperman tells CNBC he gives the Fed chair a failing grade. We've had fairly irresponsible fiscal monetary policies. We pulled demand forward. We've got to get our house back in order. We've an explosion of debt in the system. That debt has to be serviced. We're probably facing an environment of continued high inflation, rising interest rates. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warns of economic storm clouds on the horizon as banking bosses prepare to testify before Congress. Well, elsewhere, Russia's Vladimir Putin preparing to give his first national address since the invasion of Ukraine, with the Kremlin expected to ramp up its military operations, prompting a strong backlash at the UN General Assembly in New York. Putin. Putin will only give up his war and his imperialist ambitions if he realizes that he cannot win. This is why we will not accept any pretentious referenda. And Germany's nationalization of Uniper enters its final stage with Berlin poised to buy out Fortum's 56% majority stake in the troubled gas provider, whilst providing an additional 8 billion euros in support. It's a huge event risk for markets. The Fed meeting and whether we get 75 basis points or 1%, the markets with that very much now in front of the road are just peeling back. And you can see 1% down across the major boards. The Dow shedding just over that mount, 1.1 down the S&P 500. The Nasdaq almost in that territory. So across the board, third negative session in four is what we witnessed. Market moving stocks to the downside. Home Depot, this is very much in the consumption area area of the markets in terms of some of the other areas. Alphabet falling for the S&P 500 and Amazon. So consumption plays just lightening up to an extent. But uh, there's a huge play today, you've got to say. And the markets are watching just what the language is from the Fed. Don't forget we've seen that inflation number not come down as fast as the market had anticipated. So just a little bit of concern, the backdrop and echoing what we saw last week when we saw a setback for the major indices, the biggest drop since June. So a day in the red as uh, the markets just played it cautious. Let me take you to Treasuries. We have stepped up on some of these yields. You can see 3.55 where we're trading on the 10-year yield, 3.96, just shy of the 4% handle on the short end as the market gets more aggressive now around anticipation of these rate hikes. I want to take you to what that means for the dollar trades. The uh, foreign exchange trades this morning, as we take a look across the board at the various different plays, you can see sterling is on the back foot versus the dollar versus euro. So dollar is king again, morning session, and dollar is climbing versus the Japanese yen. 144 the handle this morning, higher versus the Chinese currency. So right across the board, no one is willing to bet against the strength of the greenback. Let's get out to JP Ong, who joins us from Singapore with more on the Asian market action. JP, it is a huge day ahead, isn't it? 
It is a big day ahead, Karen. Indeed, and as we mentioned yesterday, we did say we did warn that we shouldn't read too much into Tuesday's relief gains for some, for for lack of a better term. And we're seeing it play out right now this Wednesday as we see markets going back to losing ways this Wednesday, and also ahead of the Federal Reserve's momentous policy decision. Many are actually watching out for. Perhaps this is just a sign of investors batting down the hatches before a potential Fed storm. And it's really hitting equities across many major markets quite significantly. The Nikkei 225, as we mentioned, back to losing ways in Japan down 1.2% to 27,348 points. We have the ASX 200 also slumping today. We did see iron ore futures in Singapore actually decline, and this seems to have shaken miners down under a little bit. We're seeing the ASX 200 down by about 1.5% in today's session. The South Korean KOSPI once again seeing a trade deficit with exports in the first 20 days from that country also declining. The South Korean KOSPI also in the hole by about 0.9%. Not much more relief actually in mainland China and in Hong Kong today. The Shanghai Composite today down by about half a percent. Shenzhen also trading about 1% in the red and the Hang Seng also falling by 1.6%. We go to Southeast Asia right now and we take a look at the Straits Times Index doing its best impersonation of a safe haven play but it's only hanging on by a thread just up by just flat to the upside today one and a half points higher at 3,269. Now with the Federal Reserve and the many central banks making decisions in the next couple of days we do want to take a look also at some of the emerging markets here and also what central bankers in some of these countries in, in the emerging markets will do if we do see the Federal Reserve actually hike rates significantly because that rate differential that's going to matter for many foreign funds that will choose whether or not they want to put money in markets like Jakarta or Bangkok, that's going to actually uh, play a part. And if their central banks will also react, take a look at the Jakarta Composite today, down by about 0.6%. This index is actually up more than 9% year to date. So they're actually outperforming not just most of Asia, but they're one of the best performers in the rest of the world. But if that rate differential narrows once again, we could see them actually also see their confidence sap. The Thai set today, they're facing a huge differential against the U.S., uh, against, the, uh, against the Fed. They're about 1.75% percentage points behind. But the Bangkok set actually is just seeing slight losses. And they're actually doing fairly okay year to date because of that reopening play where many in Thailand are hoping that the return of tourists will help Babui and, and really support a huge economic recovery. But when we talk about these rate differentials, actually, we want to also look at how this is impacting the forex space. Remember, it's not just the Bank of Japan and the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England making decisions. We have the Bank of Indonesia in, 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 uh, making, making a policy decision tomorrow and the Banco Central in the Philippines also doing the same thing. And we'll see here also if we can take a look at some of these uh, um, uh, uh, currencies actually trading so far today. We're also seeing them lose a little bit of ground against the U.S. dollar. If we, uh, We're just waiting for that to flip but at the moment. You will be able to see those on your screens at the moment. It's going to be another trying day for forex markets for the most part and equities also feeling a bit of the sting all eyes are going to be on what jerome powell and friends do in just a matter of hours out in the united states uh, steve back to you uh, jp just a quick question does your jp stand for john pierpoint no it doesn't sir it's john patrick my my uh-huh. parents were trying to make uh, do uh, i think they they like the Kennedys a little too much, sir. Oh, of <laughs> course, the Kennedys, okay, rather than the banking doyen, uh, who is John Pierpoint. I only asked uh, John Patrick, thank you very much indeed for that, because I'm moving from John Patrick to uh, John Pierpoint Morgan. 
uh, IEJP. CEO, JD, Jamie Dimon. Uh, we'll warn US lawmakers today about economic storm clouds ahead. In a pre-release testimony to the House Financial Services Committee, Diamond says, quote, even the best and brightest economists are split as to whether these could evolve into a major economic storm or something much less severe. Very interesting, though, and also in his testimony, he's been talking about uh, the uh, amount of capital needed for the systemic banks and whether that is preventing them from lending more to the mortgage market and sending it to uh, uh, perhaps other sources. And very interesting, contentious debate there. Elsewhere, Citigroup CEO Jane Fraser uh, also warning that the current economic climate is, quote, no less daunting than during the pandemic. Attention is fixed firmly on the Fed today with its two-day policy meeting set to wrap up. So two Eastern time, you get the announcement, you get the SEP uh, economic projections at around that time, and then at 2.30, you get the Powell press conference at 8 CET. Okay. Uh, the U.S. central bank is widely expected to hike by 75 basis point, although some have called for a full percentage point move higher. Swedes went there. Why not the Fed? Uh, it's a delicate balancing act with the Fed tasked with taming surging inflation and the risk rising, of course, of inflation. Karen and I are at the wall, so you know the producers have got something cooked up as ever. Uh, let's have a look at the CPI projections as well. Uh, Karen will come to you in a few moments' time. Uh, but the point here is, uh, how do you tame inflation, which you misjudge for the best part of a year plus as well, calling it pretty transitory as well. The problem, I guess, for policymakers is not that they're looking at this line, the headline policy uh, CPI, but it's the core figure, which that was the disappointing thing that sent these markets back into a bit of a funk this week as well and last, when the fact that the core was picking up. Now, whether that's housing costs or something else, it is a bit of a whack-a-mole at the moment because, of course, the core strips out uh, energy, it strips out food as well, uh, and there was a hope that this was just about the supply problems on the former but actually now the worry is that it is stickier for the Fed and as such they may need to go higher for longer but potentially front-loading. But the question is, Karen, it's not whether it is inflation or whether it is recessionary risk. It is now the clear and present danger of both. Yeah, that's right. And if we could take a look at the employment numbers, don't forget, we're often described as somewhat backward-looking, but it is now the driving seat, I think, for a lot of people because we're getting this tightness through the labour market that is pushed onto employers that ultimately means more wage demands. And then that uh, wage component is still driving demand stories. So it is a big element for many to watch out for this uh, employment number. The US economy, though, of course, are continuing to create more jobs, and that's a big factor, I think. But as we talk about rates versus recession, just worth noting that all these catalysts on the backdrop, a lot of investors concerned that we've not seen this uh, very high inflation rate come down quickly enough, and that sets the prospects for much higher interest rates. From here, the question around valuation, too, just to set the scene for today as we kick off uh, some trading action potential on the back of the Fed. The S&P 500 trading at 16.6 times the projected earnings over the next 12 months. That is down from 21.5 at the end of last year. The big question is whether that's reset enough if we continue to see uh, this uh, higher rates story from the Fed, Steve. Uh, thank you, Karen. Stephen Blitz is the chief US economist at TS Lombard. Stephen, I have so many questions and I don't know who can give me the answer. Maybe you can, actually, Stephen. Um, well, is even the... if I can, I'll try. Well, you, I know you will. I know you will. So even, even though it's a ridiculous hour where you are, um, is the Fed now doing the right thing by talking about no pivot as of yet uh, and going hard on the early rate hikes? Yes. 
And in fact, I would say, if anything, there's still, um, you know, more Arthur Burns in their actions than uh, Paul Volcker uh, in their actions and more Paul Volcker in their talking. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's absolutely the right thing for them to do. And uh, even with a hundred basis point cut, I mean, increase, Ari, uh, they're still going to be far behind inflation, right? I mean, look, the game is, and, the, and, and it's a very difficult game. And it's what makes this tightening cycle very different. In past cycles, in every cycle, the funds rate is moving in the same direction as the inflation rate. We all know that the inflation rate is going to come down due to the e- easing of supply chain issues and all that kind of stuff. So we know the inflation rate is going to come down, but to where? And the Fed keeps hoping that the inflation rate is going to come down to a level that's going to turn their funds rate tight. And I think they thought three would be enough by the end of the year and that the the core inflation rate would be running around three and they'd be at three and a quarter, three and a half. And now the message of the August CPI is it's not melting away quite so quickly. Stephen, a lot of really interesting points there, but I want to go straight to some of your copy as well, where you're making the very important points about the size of the Fed's balance sheet and, and, and the implications on markets and liquidity of that on the on the the QT versus QE debate as well. You've made some very interesting points on this. Do you want to just share them with our viewers? Yeah, I think first, this is not 2018, right? So in 2018, you got a doubling of the deficit. The Fed ramped up and basically the market almost had to triple the amount that it had to um, it, it had to uh, uh, finance. And at the same time, the Fed didn't run any repo facility on its own, which got itself into problems a year later in 2019, especially September of 2019. This time around, there's a couple of major differences. One, the Fed has a repo facility. So if there's a problem with repo in the treasury market, they can step in and they can get involved and keep the treasury market liquid. That's number one. Number two, uh, because of the sharp drop in the deficit uh, and the way Fed uh, treasury financing has been, there's really not that much of a change in terms of the total uh, between this coming year and 23 versus 2022, in terms of how much the private sector has to take down. The third and most important point uh, of this is that this they have about 2.2 trillion in reverses with the money funds. They didn't have that in 2018. And they could if they choose to. And I think when I look at the structure of short rates, including the way they're paying interest on reserves, namely that they keep paying it above the funds rate. And the banks have been pulling reserves out since spring of last year. And they've been converting those, as I've been saying for a long time they would, they've been converting those into loans. Now, uh, until they hit some capital ratio where they can't anymore. So the, the Fed now can basically run down its balance sheet $720 billion against the $2.2 trillion reverses. And those reverses with the money market funds, basically the money market funds, this becomes paint dry because the money market funds take that cash and in turn, and they last year they were net sellers of about 400 billion uh, in treasuries. 
uh, and they just flip that around and they buy treasuries instead of lending, instead of earning the interest by lending the money to the Fed. And at the same time, Treasury acknowledges that by issuing more uh, Treasury bills, which, by the way, they in 2021, they shrank the uh, bills outstanding by $1.1 trillion. So you can see how that can just reverse out and that the shrinkage of the balance sheet basically just becomes money funds going from basically lending money to the Fed, buying treasuries, to buying treasuries directly. Right, Stephen. If we piece all this together, what does it mean for markets? Because we've got a lot of investors concerned about the rate story, about the potential for a hard landing from here. I I noticed you put 5% as a top terminal rate, top potentially for the markets to watch out for. This is not priced in. So what do we have on the back of the Fed today? A market that is reeling or a market that's finds some comfort? Well, the market shouldn't be looking for comfort here. I mean, that's what, you know, that was the whole point of Powell giving a very short speech was to make sure that the message was very clear. Now, let's see him follow it up uh, later today. Um, But that's, there isn't comfort here. And the problem is for the market is that, and, and why it should not find comfort is because from the period since the 08, 09 recession, the U.S. economy has been floated by an asset inflation. You don't have a leverage issue, right? Households delevered over the last 10 years. And even business, if you look at debt less cash as a percent of revenue, it's pretty much unchanged. So the leverage isn't there. So the borrowing isn't there for higher interest rates to curtail. And then the economy slows as a result. What you have is the two-prong attack, which I've written about for a few years now, is the dollar and the equity markets through its wealth effect, through its signaling and other and other things. So um, there shouldn't be. And the, the issue about 5% is really a question of how long is the Fed going to take to get the funds rate up over the inflation rate? And as I said, I started out by saying it's a bit of a game because you know the inflation rate is going to decelerate. But if the inflation rate settles in at five, six percent, to think that four and a quarter is the right number, it's not. And you know, you're going to start to come into another year of wage negotiations, and people are going to say, look, even if the inflation rate's lower, my cost of living is higher. They're going to want that adjustment. You have a tight labor market. Uh, this idea that, oh my gosh, they're going to create a hard landing, he's told you that. This is the object. The object is to run growth below trend, which in the U.S. is about 1.8%, and increase the unemployment rate, right? He says, you know, create slack in the labor market, which is just a nice central bank way of saying throwing people out of work. And it's an unfortunate thing. It's especially unfortunate because it's a cycle that they've created. And I suspect if we do get a recession, like I believe we are with a, a... an ultimate or a high point of five and a half, six percent in unemployment, um, 
There'll be a political issue next year in front of Congress, but we'll let next year take care of itself. Right, Stephen. So what does this mean as we talk about a hard landing for Main Street? Because the consumer, as we know, came out of the pandemic. They had pent up savings. They were spending that money. They've had a fairly strong run in terms of going to the employer for the first time in many years saying, I want bigger wages. I want bonuses. How does this change? What does next year look like for that same consumer from the housing market to what they're willing to spend at the shops? Well, I don't. Uh, look, five and a half, six percent is a high unemployment rate. It's not as high as we've had in the past. Uh, it's, it's, it, you know, it, it always depends on who's unemployed, right? And so, if you're the one that's unemployed, it's a very unfortunate circumstance. Um, but what it's going to mean is going to be more downward pressure on prices. Uh, I don't think it's going to be particularly deep. You know, maybe two quarters of minus one, one and a half percent GDP growth. Uh, and then a slow rebound after that. I just think for the housing market, is there's a lot of pent-up demand. I think housing is seeing at the moment really, a, a, you know, just like computer chips have had surge prices, homes had surge prices. And those surge prices are coming off. And when they write, write themselves to the uh, uh, mortgage, much higher mortgage rates, people will buy houses because demographically, uh, we're set up for a strong housing market in the United States over the next five, 10 years. So um, it's short lived. It's not going to be fun. And I think the most uh, and those who have uh, listed equities are going to be the one who are going to see the biggest hole in their balance sheets, because that's where the that's that's where the imbalance is. Uh, and and slowly, you know, the world will work its way back to recovery and uh and life will go on. Stephen, quite a scene setter. Thank you very much for joining us today. I much appreciated. Stephen Blitz, Chief US Economist, T.S. Lombard. Plenty of warning signals there as we gear up for the Fed today. And speaking of which, uh, for all things Fed, you can check out CNBC.com, including our subscriber-only pro section, one number that could be key to how markets may trade after the Fed decision. We've got a key article there. I met one of the new writers of Pro this morning. Yes, you did. I think I terrified him. His name's Ganesh. Good morning to you and welcome to the family. It's his second <laughs> exactly. day. I think he wasn't ready for me that early. No one's ready for you that early. No. no. <laughs> Not even the audience. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, OK. Uh, we are eight minutes away from... Uh, nine minutes away from a very important announcement, actually. The German economy minister is going to make a statement on Uniper at 6.30 GMT. Actually, no, that's not nine minutes then, is it? It's an hour and nine minutes, because 6.30 G is 7.30 B. Exactly, So you've got another hour and nine minutes to wait. There you go. If I carry on talking long enough, it will be there. Uh, Germany's nearing nationalisation of the Uniper... Um, group, uh, basically, uh, the potential buy-in or buy-out of the Fortum 78% stake will happen, plus a an 8 billion euro injection. That's what the copied Reuters and other people are saying as well this morning. So uh, an hour and eight minutes away. Uh, you got, you're right with that? <laughs> yes. Are we, 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 we going to tell the audience about the plumbing? The they love hearing all the behind-the-scenes <laughs> stuff as well. Yes. Yeah, so um, the the powers this. that be are finally updated are prompt pedals, which yes. come from, I think they were first put in in 1962. Right. Uh, and, and they're different, aren't they? And yeah. so what they said to us this morning, uh, viewers, and I can tell you this, they said, can you do us a favour? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Can you, can you get in a little bit early to the set, have a little play with it, because it's a little bit different, the reverse button's a little bit different and all that, and, uh, and so can you get in? So, yeah, I, I did what they said. I was sitting here at quarter to six, having a little play, checking out. 
And, and what time did you get to set? I think it was about... Uh, 5.59. Yes, one, one minute to... <laughs> so the whole of the production team is in terror this morning, the, the directors, about what happens when you're on prompt. I am just... I have that deer in headlights look already. <laughs> so it's like you've swapped a car and you take it for that test drive for the first right. time. But and, it doesn't and, feel like a sports have car. A, and, 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 well, really, I mean, I know we've got to move on. There's very many serious <laughs> stories, but a bit of light relief perhaps. Uh, you, know, um, um, uh, you have high heels. Yes, I do not wear typically. high heels anymore, certainly not at work. Uh, and so hence you use your ball of your foot to push well, exactly. and I very often use the heel. relevant when you're wearing high heels. So it's, 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 it's very different, very yes. technical. Good luck, go on, let's just see how you get on, oh, first well, time. It, it could be you, so you've gone to using... I don't wear high heels on there anymore. But, but you've actually changed the way you step on the prompt now. It's changed a lot because I'm, I'm more of a heel motion, but now I've got to use the toe on this new one. So the point is, if we crash the car, just bear with us today. <laughs> a European Central Bank President, Christine Lagarde, says the ECB may need to raise interest rates beyond a neutral level. A growing number of European policymakers now expect rates to have to go higher into restrictive territory. Euro area annual inflation hit 9.1% in August, well ahead of the 2% target. I beautifully done. That felt great. It did feel, look great. Mm. See if I can uh, not mess it up. Coming up on the show, Ukrainians are now, well, this is really interesting. Ukrainians in the, um, uh, I guess, separatist held territories are now being asked to vote on joining Russia in coming days. Now, this is sparking outrage from world leaders. It's what comes with it as well from the Russians, which is particularly or scary and worrisome as well, but we'll give you more on this after the break. And for plenty more on the Fed's rate forecast, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Okay, the Russian President Vladimir Putin is expected to make his first address to the nation since his invasion of Ukraine. He was actually expected to do it last night, didn't, and now we're waiting, really, for his speech, which uh, is due. Uh, it was originally scheduled, uh, yes, I say, for Tuesday evening, but was postponed without explanation. Meanwhile, pro-Russian separatists in occupied areas in uh, the east and south of Ukraine are planning referendums on joining Russia in coming days. Uh, Russia's plans have drawn international condemnation as global leaders gather in New York for the UN General Assembly. US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says President Biden will issue a stern rebuke in his address today. Kiev dismissed the move as a stunt and French President Emmanuel Macron said there will be no recognition on the global stage for the votes. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz also condemned the vote, describing the exercise as a sham. Putin. Putin will only give up his war and his imperialist ambitions if he realizes that he cannot win. In so doing, he isn't just destroying Ukraine, but he's also ruining his own country. This is why we will not accept a peace dictated by Russia. This is why we will not accept any pretentious referenda. And this is why Ukraine must be able to defend itself against Russia's invasion. We are supporting Ukraine with all our might financially, economically, with humanitarian assistance, and also with weapons. Look, 
I don't want to terrorise anyone over their breakfast uh, or wherever you're watching around the world, but this is a very, very dangerous phase of the war. Every phase is dangerous for Ukraine itself, but for the world this is dangerous as well. It's very interesting to see what the erstwhile allies of Russia do next, because th th this is how the logic goes. The separatists asked to be uh, have a referendum, uh, and then of course if it's anything like the Crimea referendum, it'll be 95.5%, which is what it was in Ukraine. Uh, uh, it would be the same in Zaporizhia, Kherson, Luhansk and Donetsk as well for joining Russia. Russia then issues passports to everyone. They basically see it as annexed territory and then part of Russia itself, part of the Russian Federation, which then means it is defendable if there are encroachments on Russia. And then it changes the nuclear philosophy uh, from Russia as well and potentially says if you attack Russian lands, we see this as an existential threat uh, and then we will potentially use nuclear weapons to defend our country. This is why it is stunningly dangerous and the next level. Of course, the Allies uh, and the backers, the West, NATO, all of Ukraine, think it's ridiculous, you know, and the reason why it's happening now, of course, is because the momentum is all with the Ukrainians on the battlefield at you. the moment in the East. Not necessarily yes. in the South, because there's a hard-fought battle going on in Kherson, but it appears at the moment from what we've seen, that what we've seen um, in uh, Kharkiv and the air around that, and mm. is now potentially pushing into Luhansk with the first... Uh, foothold in the hands for a long, long time for the Ukrainians. So this gets very, very dangerous. So the timing is no coincidence because the Russians have got their back to the wall at the moment. And we think about referendums, there's an air of legitimacy around votes and referendum that effectively you just cement the way the population feels. But of course, we know this is anything but democracy at work. Uh, hence the reason why you've got this pushback from uh, Europe and allies across in the West. But uh, the timing of this speech that we were waiting for last night that just didn't happen, I think is fascinating as the UN General Assembly is meeting. You've got this pushback against the war in Ukraine anyway. Why was it held off? Why did we have a postponement to that speech? I think that's a big question mark for some people watching this. But just to the point around the incursion so far and the success the Ukrainians have been having, is this a way to end the war? Is there any potential for that where you've got now a reinforcement of that eastern flank and then can you have Russia declaring that there's been success in that military operation? Could that be the end game or is this just about I, I don't see that. Um, according to President Erdogan, who has had some success in negotiations in getting grain shipments out, for instance, apparently Putin wants to talk now. But, but on what terms? And as Zelensky's turned around and said, this is our country. Unless you get out of our country, unless you get out of Luhansk, unless you get out of Donetsk, unless you get out of Crimea, which you illegally annexed in 2014, there is no negotiation. This is sovereign Ukrainian territory which is all bad enough as it is, but I, I have the question for China. I have a question for other countries who see themselves as non-aligned but have close relationships with Russia. Is this what you really expect to see from your erstwhile ally as well? The threat of nuclear war, global nuclear war, uh, if um, Ukraine uh, has the temerity to win back more territory in the east and south, and that is pretty much what the Russians are threatening, potentially, we understand as well. And of course, the other point is, is uh, um, this has been called, as you quite rightly say, a special military operation. Um, are the Russians now about to declare war? Are they about to go for mass mobilization? Which is terrifying for the Russian middle classes who actually um, have been comforted by the fact this is just a military operation rather than a war, by the fact that there hasn't been conscription of their sons uh, into um, the military as well. And that will take this to an absolute new phase domestically in Russia 
and indeed internationally. Which, as we talk about, risk events for markets could be uh, significant at this point. I think markets are the least of our problem in mm. that case. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.